Hello and welcome to the Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try to help to connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. So if you find these signposts helpful, uh, please click on the like button and subscribe. Thank you. We're going to continue our series of signposts on uh, First Peter uh, about living faithfully in a pagan environment and uh, I'm going to read from 1st Peter chapter 1 beginning at verse 13. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favourites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days he has been revealed for your sake. Though through Christ you have come to trust in God. And you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. For you have been born again, <clears throat> but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, People are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, in our previous signpost, <coughs> we noted that Peter wants his readers to have confidence in the gospel, to be assured of their, that their salvation is secure because it's kept for them uh, by God and is protected by his power. The word therefore in verse 13, <coughs> excuse me, signals that Peter is about to draw some conclusions from what he has said in the opening verses. Over the last few centuries in Western culture, certainly, uh, our understanding of faith has moved it to the inner realm of thoughts and feelings. Even in these thoroughly post-Christian societies, faith is respected so long as it remains private and does not disturb or intrude into the public space. However, in the verses that follow, uh, basically, Peter says that the confidence in the gospel does not merely lead to a sense of inner peace and assurance of salvation. For if, as Peter says in verse 3, we have been given a living hope, then we must live in the light of that hope, in the reality of it. 
From verse 13 onwards, his letter will express ways in which our confidence in the gospel must be publicly demonstrated in the way that we live in the world. I think it's significant that after describing all the blessings of salvation, Peter goes on to describe how disciples of Jesus ought to respond. That is how they ought to live and the kind of actions that they should take in light of the hope that is now theirs in Christ. In fact, from verse 13 onwards, with very few exceptions, the rest of the letter in some way describes the public living out of our living hope. The phrase, prepare your minds for action, is literally uh, gird up the loins of your mind. It's an odd phrase, the meaning of which isn't perhaps very obvious to people today. But as Howard Marshall points out, it is the ancient equivalent of saying, roll up your sleeves in order to get down to hard work. The language can in fact be traced back to Exodus 12 and 11, where the Israelites, about to leave Egypt, are told to eat the Passover, dressed and equipped to start out on the long tough journey without delay. They could be leaving at any moment, so they've got to be ready. That's the kind of sense that Peter is given here. The next command is one that's repeated several times in the letter, namely that they should exercise self-control. The phrase means actually to be sober. Uh, Drinking even a small amount of alcohol affects your ability to think clearly and rationally and the more you drink, then the more your cognitive functions become impaired, the more likely you are to make bad decisions and poor choices. Peter's using the term here not in a literal sense of being drunk with wine, but metaphorically, as Marshall puts it, he is concerned with the broad danger of not being alert to spiritual realities. It's the failure to recognise temptation as temptation. The failure to assess situations from a Christian point of view and so on. Above all, they must put their hope in the grace that will be theirs when Christ is revealed to the world. In fact, they must pin all their hopes on Jesus and not qualify their faith in him with any other allegiances. Taken together, the three commands in verse uh, verse 13 suggest that Peter wishes his readers to avoid any form of mental or spiritual intoxication that would confuse the reality that Christ has revealed uh, and deflect him from a life steadfastly fixed on the grace of Christ. The way that they had set their hope fully on the grace of Christ is by both thinking about and acting upon the reality of their salvation and the hope they have in Christ. As Vincent writes, uh, for Peter that hope is both the result of God's saving activity and an activity that we undertake towards God. In verses 14 to 16, Peter continues his exhortation of the practical steps that they are to take. They have not to slip back into their old way of living, but rather they have to let God's character shape their present conduct. The temptation to abandon the faith in the face of persecution was a very present reality for Christians living in the Roman Empire. As noted in an earlier signpost, there's not any evidence in the letter that these churches that he was writing to uh, were suffering the extremes of imprisonment, torture and execution at this point. Though we know from the book of Revelation that they would do so in the very near future. However, that doesn't mean that it was easy to be a Christian in a pagan society. And they were suffering. The temptation to compromise for an easy life was strong. 
but then it always has been a temptation for those who desire to live faithfully in hostile environments. We are constantly encouraged to just go with the flow and have an easy life. The, <clears throat> the ancient Israelites were often tempted to go back to their old life in Egypt, especially when they encountered suffering and trials in the wilderness. In the same way, these scattered and persecuted Christians may also have been tempted to go back to their old ways of living. But Peter warns them that this is not really an option. He firstly describes them as obedient children. And it's quite a significant phrase, actually. <clears throat> the word translated as obedient is what's known as a genitive noun. In other words, obedience is a characteristic of every true child of God, one that distinguishes Christians from non-Christians who are described in Ephesians 2 and 2 as sons of disobedience. According to some commentators, Peter only uses the word to refer to the response that believers make to the gospel when they are converted, when they become Christians. But since Peter has begun at this verse to write about Christian conduct, I think actually it more likely refers both to our initial obedience to the gospel and our ongoing obedience as disciples. Living under the evil of Nazism in the 1930s, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that only the believers obey and only the obedient believe. Although obedience is a characteristic of true disciples, we should note that this does not mean that disciples of Jesus live perfect lives. Rather, it means that the general pattern of our lives, the direction of travel, if you like, is one of obedience to Jesus and faithfulness to our pledged allegiance to him as the saving king. So in a variety of ways, Peter is telling them that they must be focused on God in a seriously exclusive way. That doesn't mean that they should separate themselves out of and from the rest of society, but rather they are to live in society. As they do that, as they live in society, their loyalty to God should be paramount in their lives and should uh, supersede all other loyalties. All Christians will struggle with temptation and will stumble on their journey towards the inheritance that's ours in Christ. But that should not be the habitual pattern of our lives. So Bonhoeffer wasn't speaking about sinless perfection, but a basic truth, a basic characteristic of the believer's life. It's precisely because disobedience is possible in our struggle with our own sinful nature uh, along with our struggle against the evil powers and the worldly attitudes around us, because of that, that Peter urges his readers to pursue holiness. The exhortation to be holy begins with a negative statement as Peter emphatically tells them not to be conformed to this world by slipping back into their old ways of living before they came to know Christ. <coughs> The same phrase is used by the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 and it means to pattern your life after someone or something. Don't be conformed. Don't pattern your life after the way that you did before. He wants them to make choices in life and pursue the things which pattern their lives under the life of God. So as God is holy, they too are to pursue holiness. It's important to take note that holiness is not some super spiritual feeling, but is rooted in the ordinary actions of everyday life. 
For Peter doesn't just say, be holy, rather he says, be holy in all your conduct. Furthermore, he's not saying something new here, for he goes on to quote the Hebrew scriptures where God repeatedly describes himself as holy and calls his people to be holy as well. We have a strangely negative view of holiness in our culture. People are sometimes referred to as holier than thou, meaning they have a kind of distasteful attitude of superiority, of moral superiority that makes them judgmental towards others. The holiness that Peter is speaking of here is not like that, far from being a pious attitude of of moral superiority. It's the essence of Christian living, involving both what the Spirit is doing in the believer, sanctifying and cleansing the believer, and what they are doing in the power of the Spirit in all their ways and behaviour. Holiness then is, is about the everyday choices that we make in life, what to watch on TV, what to read, what to listen to, the conversations we engage in, the work that we do, how we spend our leisure time and so on. Far from being a super spiritual attitude removed from the reality of life, it is the reality of the life of God in us, in the reality of everyday life. We are to be holy like God, that's to say we are to imitate him so that his character will be seen in all our conduct. It's no surprise therefore that Peter describes us as children in verse 14 and God as father in verse 17. First, the nature of children to want to imitate their parents. In the same way, we are to imitate God in all our conduct. I think the word all is really important because it's very easy to put on a front of holiness in public but to live differently in private. Our public persona and our private lives should both be characterised by holiness. If we're not holy in our conduct when no one else is looking then our public holiness, holiness will most likely be a sham, a front to gain praise. Holiness is um, really, in its basic sense, it's being separated um, from something to something else. And so it's about us simply being separated out of the the way of living and the thinking that, that governed our lives, the desires that governed our lives before we came to know Christ, and being separated from that to being separated for God, to live the kind of life that God calls us to live, to live a life of pledged allegiance to Jesus. And nor is this holiness only concerned with the religious aspects of our lives. Peter is not saying here that instead of offering sacrifices to Artemis, Christians should now offer them to God instead. The call is to live differently, not just practice religion differently. Holiness is all about all of life and affects all our actions. Peter is concerned that the way Christians live would demonstrate their faith in God, would demonstrate the character of God and fulfil Jesus' call to be his witnesses. The goal of this then is not that we would live some kind of holier-than-thou, morally superior kind of life, but rather that our lives, our behaviour, would encourage other people to believe also. As N.T. Wright puts it, despite what people think, 
within the Christian family and outside it. The point of Christianity isn't to go to heaven when we die. Rather, it is that we would live holy lives here and now, lives that demonstrate the reality of God. Missiologist Michael Frost talks about Christians uh, being like movie trailers for the kingdom. When you go to the cinema and you to see a movie, um, there are usually trailers for other movies that are going to be released uh, at a future date um, and uh, they, they kind of want to advertise them to you. The trailer gives the viewer a foretaste of what this forthcoming movie will be like. And he says that our lives have to kind of be like that. The way that we live day by day is to be like a movie trailer for the kingdom of God. A kingdom that's here already overcoming the kingdoms of the world, but that will not be here until it, it's uh, in all its fullness until Jesus' final return. It's a thought that's well expressed in a prayer from the Lecto 365 uh, devotional app. Each day's devotion ends with basically the same prayer. Father, help me to live this day to the full, being true to you in every way. Jesus, help me to give myself away to others, being kind to everyone I meet. Spirit, help me to love the lost, proclaiming Christ in all I do and say. I'm in no doubt that all of this presents a significant challenge to Christians living in the West today. Every study that's been done comparing the lifestyles of Christians and those of non-Christians has come to the same conclusion, namely that there is no discernible difference between them. Now, <clears throat> I think something is very wrong if the lives of those who have a living hope through faith in Christ, are exactly the same as the lives of those who do not have that living hope. I can't help but agree with Alison Morgan's critique of the contemporary Western church, when she says that we've set up private clubs for those whose leisure interest is religion. Peter's call to these Christians in the first century to be holy is as urgently necessary as it uh, was today as it was then. And that call naturally leads Peter to remind them and us that believers like non-believers will be judged for their actions and that God will do so impartially, showing no favouritism. Ben Witherington notes that this seems to mean that God will not give them or us any special treatment on Judgment Day, any special lenience in regard to the believer's deeds. Indeed, if we who know and believe do not do right, we may be held more accountable than non-believers. He notes that this thought alone should be enough to compel us to right behaviour. And as Peter suggests, that it should arouse the proper response to God of reverent fear, knowing that he is the judge, who will judge us all according to what we have done. It's interesting that, isn't it? That, I mean, Jesus says the same thing in Matthew's Gospel. It's interesting that we're not going to be judged according to what we've believed or what we've claimed. We're going to be judged according to what we have done. Peter wants them to have confidence in the gospel 
and have that inner assurance. But the confidence in the gospel also means for Peter and, and the other Bible writers, it means having a, a life that demonstrates that confidence, living a life in public that demonstrates our faith, our trust and our confidence in what God has done in Jesus and what he promises yet to do in Jesus. Peter adds another motivation for living faithfully, the nature of their redemption. Peter alludes to their former way of life as being empty. It was dictated to by their evil desires that gave birth to sinful living. It was a life in which they were ignorant of God. In the person of Jesus, God has ransomed them from that life at great cost. None other than the life of Jesus. The reference to blood highlights that his death was not an ordinary death, but was in fact a sacrificial one. Marshall notes that Peter is saying that they were caught with no possibility of escape in a futile way of life that would end in condemnation from the judge who judges everybody according to their works. Christ's self-offering to God as a sacrifice, however, constituted the ransom price by which they were set free from the old ways of life and brought into the new life of the children of God. And so now, They've been born again and they are empowered to live holy lives. Lives characterised by love for God and love for one another. He reminds them that this is the gospel that was preached to them. It's the gospel that's also been preached to us. And so the challenge lies before us to live in reverent fear of God, growing in holiness and love as we live as resident aliens in a pagan land. And that means that there are things that we should not do. And there are some things that we should pursue wholeheartedly. And throughout the rest of this letter, Peter is going to detail some of those things. But we see from this first chapter, he really wants us to have confidence in the gospel. Confidence in the sense of our inner uh, peace and awareness, our assurance that we are saved and that our salvation is secure uh, in Christ but also confidence that we're not afraid to live according to the Pledge of Allegiance that we've made to Jesus as the Saving King. And I pray in the coming week that all of us will live that kind of life. Thanks for listening.